0: Welcome to History Talk, where we explore the deep background behind what's going on in the news. I'm your host, Patrick Paiani. Among the most important initiatives undertaken by United States law enforcement at all levels for more than the past half century has been an attempt to suppress the use, sale, and trade of drugs deemed illegal by lawmakers in society. Known as the War on Drugs since the 1970s, this effort has absorbed many billions of dollars, led to armed intervention overseas, produced the incarceration of millions of individuals in the United States, and stigmatized inner city communities of color, among many other effects. But why did drugs become illegal in the first place? Is the War on Drugs worth the cost? And what insights does history offer into how we might confront the problem of drug use. On today's show, we offer three conversations. In our first, host Mark Sikulski speaks with Scott Martin of Bowling Green on America's most concerted attempt to ban a mind-altering substance, prohibition. Martin challenges the idea that the modern war on drugs can be likened to prohibition, arguing that the differences between the two far outweigh the similarities. Next, I speak with Stephen Siff of Miami University of Ohio about the illegalization of marijuana. Sif explains how marijuana was made illegal in the first place in the early 20th century, and some reasons why attitudes have been so difficult to change since then. And in our last segment, Mark Sikulski sits down with Ohio State's Clay Howard to discuss when drugs first became a matter of public concern, pointing out that federal and state governments became involved in the suppression of drugs only gradually. Then, Howard highlights the relationship between drugs, race, and America's urban crisis of the 1970s and 80s to help us understand why we see such vast disparities in drug enforcement between white communities and communities of color. We have three great interviews for you today, so stay tuned on History Talk, produced by Origins, Current Events, and Historical Perspective.
1: Joining us now is Dr. Scott Martin, Professor of History and American Culture Studies at Bowling Green State University. Dr. Martin, thank you for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So, you know, lately we hear a lot in the news about the uh, legalization or illegalization of drugs in general and specifically marijuana, and occasionally people sort of bandy about comparisons between the war on drugs and and prohibition. Um, Would you say this is an apt comparison or are there big differences here that we should bear in mind?
2: Um, I think there are big differences, and the thing to keep in mind is that the comparison of the war on drugs to prohibition has long been a staple of the pro-legalization movement. And however you feel about legalization or having things remain illegal, Um, The fact remains that this is a bad analogy. It's not an apt analogy. And for uh, those in favor of legalization, I think it serves more of a rhetorical function than uh, an actual analytical tool or or something like that. Basically, I think there are two major problems with it. Um, The pro-legalization movement would argue that prohibition and its supposed failure demonstrates that you cannot ever prohibit things that the public wants, like alcohol, that they will find a way to get them, Mm -hmm. whether it's through speakeasies or marijuana dispensaries or or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think there are two problems with that, um, aside from the obvious one that we prohibit all sorts of things that that people want, um, whether it's exceeding the speed limit or income tax evasion or child pornography or bigamy or anything like that. Mm those prohibitions don't completely eliminate that behavior, but I don't think anyone is saying we should, then they're a failure, we should just completely eliminate the laws that make those things prohibited. Um, So there's that. The law itself, um, the prohibition amendment, and then the Volstead Act, which actually enacted it, um, are a, a very different animal than the war on drugs. A couple of big differences the prohibition amendment uh, in the amendment itself gave what was then called uh, concurrent authority for the states and federal government to enforce prohibition this meant that both the states and federal government were supposed to enforce it uh, each in their own way and hopefully uh, in complementary ways as well when it came right down to it Uh, in various places, particularly in urban areas, prohibition turned out to be unpopular for a variety of reasons. And so city mayors, uh, and in some cases state governors, didn't want to enforce prohibition. The problem with that was that the federal government was relying on the states and localities uh, for manpower, for all sorts of resources to do this. So there hadn't really been Sufficient resources allocated at the federal level for an enterprise of this magnitude. Now, there was a Federal Bureau of Prohibition that did have agents that went out and, and looked for uh, stills and speakeasies and, and things like that, mm-hmm. but uh, it was a, a relatively small, just a couple of hundred, um, a couple of hundred men in the the Prohibition unit, much too small to make up for a, a lack of. Uh, enforcement activity in any one city or state, let alone the entire country. Um, The other problem with the uh, prohibition agents was that initially when the Volstead Act was set up, being a prohibition agent was not a civil service position. It was an appointed position. So in other words, if you wanted to work for the post office or another federal agency, generally there were requirements. You might have to take an exam uh, and demonstrate that you were in fact fit to do this. Such was not the case, uh, at least initially, uh, for the Federal uh, Prohibition Bureau. And uh, it unfortunately devolved into cronyism so that um, you know, a prominent uh, person would get his cousin or you know, his uh, brother-in-law appointed, uh, even though they had no background in this. And this led to corruption, inefficiency, uh, all sorts of things. So I think those are two areas in which, um, you know, there are big differences between the war on drugs and prohibition. And also, when you, when you add in the fact that Americans and, and the Anglo-American world generally, we have centuries of experience with using alcohol. It has been a part of Anglo-American culture mm-hmm. uh, and African culture and Latin American culture, all... much all the western uh, world for centuries Uh, we don't have that much experience with drugs like heroin uh, or lsd or uh, Mm -hmm. or even for that matter marijuana Mm -hmm. Uh, so there's a going to be much harder to uproot something that's been around for centuries if not millennia than it is to prohibit something of relatively recent vintage
1: But would you say that there are, are there any lessons coming out of prohibition for the war on drugs or our approach to legalization, illegalization now?
2: Uh, It's, you know, it's always hard to draw direct lessons from history. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one thing to point out, though, is in the public mind, prohibition is an abject failure. There was Mm -hmm. nothing good about it. it. It bred, organized crime and speakeasies and uh, contempt for the law. When in fact, if you look at it closely, and you actually try to measure the results of it, uh, you could make a case that prohibition didn't do too badly considering the handicaps that it labored under that, that we've just been talking about. Um, for example, by all accounts, when statisticians and, and others have tried to assess how much did it actually cut down on drinking? The best estimate is that it cut down Americans drinking by about seventy percent, which is yeah. a considerable amount mm-hmm. and all the attendant measures of that, like cases of cirrhosis of the liver and arrests for you know, drunkenness and various things like that, not only did it make this huge decrease in drinking, but it took something like four decades into the 1970s before the level of American drinking, the amount that that people drank reached pre-prohibition levels. So it not only had an immediate effect, but it had a very long-term effect as well. So that to simply and blithely say, well, prohibition doesn't work because you want to argue for the legalization of drugs, there are enormous problems with that. It, it, It just isn't a good analogy.
1: Okay. Are there other sort of takeaways from prohibition that we can think about as we approach the drug question today?
2: I think just that um, policymakers need to be very clear about what their objectives are. Is it harm reduction? Mm -hmm. Is it a total prohibition uh, of this? Uh, Is there some middle ground? Um, Do we want to lump together people who use drugs with people who sell drugs? In other words, from prohibition, if the problem is is Al Capone and, and organized crime, what if you would just crack down on Al Capone and organized crime and not worried about people who are using it using alcohol buying alcohol Uh, and I guess the the argument today would be you can't criminalize addiction or abuse Mm -hmm. because that puts us in this mass incarceration um, situation that that we're in now but I think uh, for prohibition the you know the thing one other Lesson that that um, we might take away from it is part of the argument of the legalization movement, particularly for marijuana, but for other drugs as well, uh, is that this can be a positive thing in that it will remove these negative consequences like law enforcement uh, excesses and uh, huge rates of incarceration, but that would also, if you legalize it. Uh, regulate it and tax it Mm -hmm. it becomes a a public good and it it generates tax funds and revenue and all sorts of things like that and i think the thing to remember that may in fact be true but um even when you legalize and regulate something it doesn't mean there won't be a black market Mm -hmm. in it just as there's still moonshining today there's still sales of um untaxed liquor. Uh, Cigarettes would be another example. Uh, Even though cigarettes are legal, heavily regulated, heavily taxed, um, they are one of the major uh, contraband items on the black market. I think uh, several years ago, um, there was an estimate that like a quarter of the cigarettes sold in New York City are not taxed. They're black market cigarettes. So Hmm. a lot of the problems that pro-legalization Advocates would argue'll go away will not necessarily go away or they won 't go away completely or as completely as perhaps they would hope
1: okay did people deploy these sort of public health type arguments that we hear now in favor of prohibition? Was that common, or was it more of a moral uh, they were moral arguments primarily
2: um, it, they were probably more moral arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, there would be uh, an economic argument um, that Drinking led to squandering of resources, it led to the impoverishment of families, that the saloon was a particularly evil place that drained the wages from workers and and thus uh, damaged their families and children and and all sorts of things like that, but uh, it was also a, a moral uh, argument that no one can use liquor safely; mm. that even one drink is is enough to uh, to set you on a road to drunkenness and and death and disease and all sorts of horrible things. Uh, in that sense, I think prohibition and repeal uh, are something of a watershed in that um, the focus shifts away from the substance itself, alcohol, to the user of it. Um, And you begin to think about, well, are some people different in that they can't use alcohol successfully? Uh, And this, if you you think about it, it's in the 30s that Alcoholics Anonymous emerges as the the primary and, and then really only treatment available for alcoholics. And their argument is some people can drink like gentlemen, and if they can, then you know, God bless him, but we can't. So this enables um, culturally and in the culture, I think, a shift away from moral arguments to more medically based and public health arguments about the impact of liquor and the policy questions that surround it.
0: That was host Mark Sikolsky interviewing Scott Martin, professor of history at Bowling Green State University. Among many other publications, he is the author of The Long Shadow of Prohibition, U.S. Drugs and Alcohol Policy in the 20th Century, in the Oxford Handbook of American Political and Policy History. Next up, I welcome Steve Siff of Miami University to discuss the illegalization of marijuana. Welcome, Steve Siff, to History Talk. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, to start, I just was wondering if you could introduce us to how drugs like marijuana were viewed in the 19th century.
3: Well, in the 19th century, at least in the United States, marijuana was probably not very well known, uh, by, by most people, although there was certainly some use um, in the in the Southwest, and also it was it was available through pharmacies um, as a product in a bunch of different forms. I think as a tincture, and um, also in a in a sort of solid form of of cannabis or hash. But I don't think it was, um, it wasn't widely used or or widely known by by most Americans. And then I I think it became increasingly well known in the first couple of decades of the 20th century, both related to um, to immigration and also to sort of publicity around the drug use, uh, around the use of cannabis, particularly among um, immigrants from Mexico and also in, uh, in black communities in the South. And so that's
0: what uh, marijuana became associated with then in the early 20th century and and so was there kind of like a racial or xenophobic or maybe even class-based dynamic to how marijuana oh. came to be viewed and and did that play a role in its kind of eventual illegalization?
3: Definitely. All all three of those things. You know, it it was viewed as being used by um by ethnic minorities it was viewed by being used as lower class people and it was viewed as you know being associated with sort of crime and vice and other you know kind of unpleasantness and and all of this certainly contributed energy to the to the laws the first the first local laws and then subsequently state and federal laws um banning banning the drugs use Um, I mean, it's interesting to contrast the prohibition of marijuana with the prohibition of alcohol. Um, Of course, alcohol prohibition, the Volstead Act, was uh, in in effect during the the 1920s. And the federal prohibition of uh, marijuana took place in in the 1930s, 1937. So the federal prohibition of marijuana actually took place after the federal prohibition of alcohol. And it's kind of interesting to contemplate that For the Volstead Act to go into effect, it required a constitutional amendment, with um, uh, state legislatures or or, or U.S. states approving uh, prohibition, Uh, and this took place over a period of decades before national prohibition could be put in place. On the same, uh, at the same time, the prohibition of of, uh, marijuana, which took place actually after alcohol prohibition was repealed, didn't seem to require any of this. Um legalistic kind of baggage um it was the the federal law was done under the authority under the federal government's taxing authority and although it tried to uh, although it really had the same effect as alcohol prohibition or it was a lost a very similar effect, putting in very similar mechanisms, the prohibition of 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 marijuana was allowed to take place without, um, I don't know, I guess much more conveniently. The, the, the federal government or the, the forces in, in favor of this didn't have to jump through the kinds of hoops that were necessary for the, the failed alcohol mm-hmm. prohibition Was experiment. that partly because
0: it was, it was uh, less well-known than alcohol and less maybe ubiquitous? Or, or why do you think that might have been?
3: Well, it was certainly less well-known and okay. certainly less ubiquitous. Those things are both true. And, you know, I, I think one reason was because the WETs The people against uh, for alcohol use were there's a large number of very easily identified people. Um, You know, basically, I mean, the the alcohol prohibition can be seen largely through the lens of sort of evangelical Protestants who don't have a tradition of alcohol use. Moving against um, immigrant groups and Catholic immigrant groups in particular, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who who did have a long tradition of alcohol use, um, you know, and often this is seen in in sort of ethnic, kind of through an ethnic lens as uh, alcohol prohibition. Kind of pushing against the political power and the political machines of German immigrants, of Irish immigrants, of these groups that were really kind of culturally tied to alcohol use and, um, you know, and and also pushing against their, you know, the taverns and the bars, which were their, their centers of social life and also their centers of political life. There wasn't the same sort of organized opposition to marijuana,
0: right? Same kind of um, cultural place of, of marijuana in, in you know, some ethnic enclaves or things like that, right?
3: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And then whatever ethnic enclaves um, did did use it, it didn't have the same. They didn't have the same kind of cultural power as the Wets, right? Okay, the, the same kind of voting power.
0: And and um, so did did legislators and lawmakers, um, you know, think that. Illegalization would solve certain problems, and were those problems, um, you know, identified as the same problems as alcohol
3: prohibition? Different problems. But behind alcohol prohibition was these these sort of issues of the the of of politics and concern about political machines and politi- uh, politics being run through taverns and barrooms. Okay. So there was this big subtext there. To, the, to prohibition as well as the sort of racial subtext. I think it was a little different with marijuana uh, prohibition because unlike alcohol, which of course was a very, very common drug, very everyone had had at least seen it or seen a, a tavern, right? Mm-hmm. With, with marijuana in the 30s, I believe that wasn't the case. I, th- I think it was still fairly exotic um, to, to most people and, and scary. I think the reason that alcohol prohibition was so popular or was it, 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 it caught steam wasn't as much because it was solving um, solving some sort of uh, problem in particular as that it was offered a set of tools to empower uh, local police and law enforcement. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, and, you know, and, and most of these tools were the same tools that had been developed and used during during prohibition. Um, you know, th- things like, um, well, you know, the, the the ability to stop someone on the street and search them. Okay. To um, – The roots you know, of that are police- here. Yeah. The the roots of those things are all – you know, and, and the, the, those are in – the roots of that are, are in marijuana pro- prohibition. The roots of that are in alcohol prohibition also. I mean, alcohol pro- prohibition. And uh, Lisa McGurr writes about this very compellingly in her – In her recent book about prohibition, the the extent to which law enforcement on the local level used prohibition law as a means to um, or as as a set of tools to crack down on on, uh, minority and immigrant groups and also for more aggressive policing in general. Right. so I I think a lot of the impetus for the anti the early anti drug laws really came from the police departments came from the bottom up rather than from the federal government and you know, obviously prohibition came from the top down in the states that did not uh, sign the you know, that did not ratify the Volstead Amendment um, um, but. And,
0: and- you know, jumping ahead a bit here to some, kind yeah. of some later decades, um, it seems like marijuana uh, had a, gained a much higher profile, especially um, you know with uh, President Richard Nixon's administration and then President Ronald Reagan's administration. Um, and I'm wondering if you could kind of talk about how it it became so well known, and maybe a little bit of how the the role played by the media and or those presidencies played in um, making sure marijuana had uh, such a negative reputation.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, mar- marijuana use became increasing dramatically during the 60s, of course. Okay, right. And began increasing dramatically, not only among uh, minority groups or lower class people, people not only among um, in cities and among um, the people we associate with drug use, but of course, among college students, the other people we associate with drug use. And uh, during the late late 60s, there was actually a lot of sympathy towards uh, or a lot of ambivalence about drug, the prohibition of marijuana or strict enforcement, strict criminal enforcement of drug law when it came to marijuana Mm -hmm. as... So many, um, so many white middle-class kids w- became involved with the drug, and um, I think, and on the federal level at least, legislatures, legislatures were uh, were anxious about kind of creating, about criminalizing a large swath of youth. So why the illegal, why the prohibition of marijuana continued through the 60s and 70s? is a is a good question too considering considering these attitudes you know most of the rhetoric regarding illegal drugs by the 60s and 70s were really formed with opiates with heroin in mind mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so when nixon for example in the 1970s talks about his war on drugs and the need to, to that drug use was uh, public enemy number 1 it's heroin use that everyone is most concerned about. But the the sort of definition of drugs into an illegal and a legal category made it um, just tended to, everything was sort of lumped together. Right.
0: Marijuana became wrapped up in that,
3: right? Yes. Marijuana became wrapped up in that. You know, because once a drug is illegal, part of the objection to people using it has nothing to do with the danger of the substance or anything like that. It has to do with the law-breaking behavior that we're trying to that we're trying to um discourage and, and, and so and,
0: and president nixon and and it and it seems like you know uh president reagan but also first lady nancy reagan were really against that sort of attitude of you know uh that you know this is the law one can't break the law
3: yeah just say no um yeah i mean a really a purely prohibitionist sort of uh, okay. a- attitude yeah and, and so, you know,
0: I wanted to ask you what were some of the, you know, as kind of we look to wrap up here, what were some of the effects of that kind of strictly prohibitionist stance against, you know, marijuana and or other drugs? And, and, you know, what can we maybe learn from some of the places like Colorado or Washington that have, uh, you know, decriminalized, uh, you know, marijuana specifically?
3: Well, you know, one of the interesting uh, messages, one of, one of the interesting pieces of news from uh, Colorado and Washington has been the decrease in use of um, prescription drugs in these prescription painkillers in particular. Oh,
0: interesting. Okay.
3: Yeah. And, and, and uh, I mean, it's, it's really awfully early to draw lessons, of course, right? Cause it's right. Only been a, it's only been a couple of years. So I don't think the effect of these changes are, have, have fully been, been seen yet. But one thing that seems to be happening in these places is that uh, doctors are prescribing less um, less painkillers. Um, opiate painkillers, which are of course potentially very dangerous drugs, because people seem to be using legal legal marijuana as an alternative.
0: Right, right, and and you know, has has there been any signs that uh, you know some of the violence that is often associated with you know a black market illicit trade has that decreased at all, or is it still you know really too early,
3: as you say, to tell? I haven't seen anything compelling on that. I, okay, I, um, it's um, one would hope, I suppose, but. One would hope, yeah. One would hope that some of the, that, um, any any violence that was driven by the marijuana trade would be diminishing. I suspect that it is because I, I suspect that the um, trans-border marijuana mm-hmm. uh, trade is probably diminishing. Oh right. Okay. With, with the increased, with, with with the increasing availability of legal grow sites in the United States, one might imagine that there is more domestically grown marijuana that's seeping into the black market. And so it seems reasonable that there would be less cross-border trade. But I haven't, I, I haven't seen anything um, empirical about that.
0: Great. Well, Steve Siff, thank you for joining us on History Talk today.
3: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your time this morning.
0: That was Stephen Siff, Associate Professor in the Department of Media, Journalism, and Film at Miami University of Ohio. He is the author of Acid Hype. American news media and the psychedelic experience, as well as the origins.osu.edu article, The Illegalization of Marijuana, A Brief History. In our final segment, Mark Sikolsky sat down with historian Clay Howard in our studio on Ohio State's Columbus campus to discuss the complex linkages between race, the drug war, and the urban crisis of the 70s and 80s.
1: Joining us now is Clay Howard, assistant professor of history at The Ohio State University. Uh, And we're going to talk a bit about drugs in American cities and American communities uh, in the 20th century. Um, So, Clay, I was wondering if uh, just to start off, you could tell us a bit about when sort of drugs broadly conceived became uh, a major issue of public concern in the United States.
4: Um, It's a tough question to answer, in part, in part because, you know, to varying degrees, drugs have always been with us. And that a lot of the drugs that we consider illicit also have medical functions, you know, so like um, heroin also is related to morphine and various other kinds of opiates, uh, painkillers. And a lot of the drugs that we use in things like uh, dentistry have their origins in cocaine as well. And at least originally, maybe 50, 60 years ago, it was um, not uncommon for... Uh, doctors to prescribe cocaine and so to some degree the question of you know when have drugs become a a problem is that drugs have always been something that have been both healers and uh, social problems at the same time
1: and so when do we see it become a, a sort of police matter a matter of criminal justice it's always been that way or it's something more recent
4: well to varying degrees, yeah, it's always been that way. But I'd say that over the course of the 20th century, you've seen uh, a big upswing in state and federal regulation mm-hmm. of drugs. So uh, all the all the time periods in which the federal or state governments have expanded have also been periods in which the regulation of drugs, the policing of drugs has also expanded. So uh, the the barring of marijuana during the New Deal, right after the end of Prohibition, Uh, After World War II, there was uh, a a great deal of anxiety about narcotics peddlers in places like California, Mm -hmm. um, and all sorts of uh, acts prohibiting the sale and trafficking of drugs. And then, of course, in the 1980s, you get the biggest upswing in the policing of drugs uh, with the war on drugs and the anxiety about crack.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, given the crossover with medicine, did the medical community have much say in what became illegal at, you know, at these various uh, turning points?
4: yeah they 've been important arbiters, and in fact, that in many ways, groups like the American Medical Association built their reputation on being able to determine between what is a good and what is a bad drug so one of the hmm. first one of the first federal laws regulating drugs uh, heroin and cocaine in particular uh, required that basically only only doctors could prescribe those things and if you were not a doctor and you were selling it then then you were in fact. Uh, breaking the law. So, to some degree, the passage of the law not only banned those substances, but also like enhanced the authority of doctors themselves. Hmm.
1: Hmm. So, it sort of goes hand in hand with professionalization of medicine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as a sort of institution. Interesting. Okay. And uh, how do we see uh, the war on drugs translate into um, uh, you know drug use or uh, enforcement of anti-drug policies in American cities?
4: Well, you know, one of the kind of consistent problems around. The policing of drugs is that communities of color have always kind of suffered from uh, either under-policing or Mm over-policing. So to some degree the the lack of police in poorer neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color have often uh, allowed the drug trade to kind of flourish there and in other moments the kind of heavy crackdown on on drug users has disproportionately put African-American men in particular in prison. So that's been a kind of long-standing problem going all the way back to the 50s if not earlier.
1: The fifties. So, at that time, um, what drugs would have been the targets? So marijuana or all yeah, kinds marijuana, of things,
4: yeah? heroin. Uh, like they call them, like benzos, They're kind of like amphetamines, oh, things uh-huh. like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and you mentioned the eighties is this big shift. Uh, why? Right. Why do you see that as a turning point in this war on drugs?
4: Well, I mean, only in the sense that the Reagan administration sort of institutionalized trends that have been kind of accelerating over the course of the twentieth century, mm-hmm. and the nineteen eighty six crack down the the federal law I'm blanking on its name right now made it much easier and had mandatory minimums for people going to prison and then the 90s states like California and the federal government had um, three strikes laws so the, the the kind of cumulative effect of that was that people started going to prison for much longer okay and more often
1: three strikes law was that specifically about drugs or is that any felony
4: no it's about, it's about any felony yeah. and uh you know it's it's actually it's in California, its origins was around the I think the rape and murder of a little girl, Polly class, mm-hmm. who was on america 's most wanted right. and uh, that's when California passed the law, and then Bill Clinton uh, championed it at the federal level but you know as as the federal government and state governments have classified more and more kinds of drug use and sales as felonies, it adds up
1: okay you know i 'm not sure if you know this, but why was it that crack exploded in the eighties was there a certain was there like a, um, a technological change? that people figured out how to make it more cheaply, or what? Uh, what drove that? Do you know?
4: That's my understanding, and so hmm. I'm not. I'm not an expert on on crack, on crack. per se. Okay. No, but I mean, I yeah. mean, the thing is that crack is cocaine, right? So right. cocaine has been around in various forms for a really long time, and so my sense is that the '80s. It became widely available I guess for two reasons one would be that the packaging the selling of of, of cocaine with other adulterants making it crack and easier to smoke mm-hmm. but also I think the the urban crisis got kind of a widespread unemployment mm-hmm. large numbers of people who either needed jobs and worked in the the drug trade or people who were not working and thus available to to use drugs of one kind or another that I think that 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 combination of factors made it so combustible
1: mm-hmm. And the, um, the kind of crack epidemic in the 80s is often taken as this, uh, an example of discrepancy between sort of white users of drugs and, and uh, those of color. I was wondering if you could speak a little more broadly about that discrepancy across you know, different sorts of drugs.
4: Well, I mean, the way that I think about this is that very often white youth who have used drugs, and we know that whites and blacks and Latinos use drugs roughly at the same rates, and because whites are demographically a majority, whites are also a majority of drug users. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that very often whites have often seen white young people, other whites using drugs as victims, either of like peddlers, drug pushers, um, a public health crisis, but have seen uh, youth of color as criminals, predators, threatening. So that's, and that was true back in the 50s as well as in the 80s. Another example that I think of is, that, um, you know, in the 80s, part of the anxiety about crack was about so-called crack babies, you know, mothers giving birth to to babies allegedly addicted to crack and all kinds of states passed laws, making it a felony to use crack when you um, were having a having a child or when you were pregnant. Mm-hmm. And we now know that although it's, you know, it's medically not good to smoke crack when you are pregnant, that actually alcohol use when you're pregnant is far, 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 far worse. And that a lot of the anxiety about crack babies ended up being unfounded and has everything to do with the perception of crack as being this, this poor person's drug, this black person's drug.
1: Is there anything comparable in terms of the sort of racial or ethnic disparity that we see?
4: Yeah. I mean, the example I think it was the, the first federal law prohibiting, the one I spoke about earlier, prohibiting the sale of, uh, of heroin and cocaine was, mm-hmm. was in the, the – kind of moment of highest immigration in U.S. history, the late 19th and early 20th century. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of anxiety, not only about uh, Irish and Germans bringing alcohol over with them and, you know, ruining cities, but also Chinese opium was one of the justifications for excluding the Chinese Mm -hmm. in the 1880s and other groups from from Asia.
1: Hmm. And do you think that given this kind of discrepancy in treating one type of drug use or drug use by certain types of people, as a threat and, and in other cases as a public health issue. Do you see more of a shift now away from one toward the other, toward more of a public health perspective, or are we still kind of in the same kind of mixed up territory?
4: It's a good question. I mean, my sense is that there is sort of bipartisan support for rolling back the war on drugs if if for nothing else than that it's gotten to be too expensive mm-hmm. and there's definitely a lot of stories now about white communities that are worried about things like painkillers and heroin and that's leading to an upsurge in um treatment for addiction and like treating treating addiction as a health concern instead of a, a criminal concern there's the new york times that had a lot of stories about that mm-hmm. about that recently but i think that to understand why so many people of color have gone to prison since the 80s, you have to also understand that there were a lot of white people who were using drugs who were getting caught, who were getting steered towards things like recovery, right? And so I think there's a more public conversation about that, and yet that's also been a longstanding trend, right? The idea is that white youth have a future, and so we need to collectively help them.
0: Clay Howard is an assistant professor in the Department of History at Ohio State University. His book, The Closet in the Cul-de-Sac, Sex, Politics, and Suburbanization in Post-War California, is forthcoming from the University of Pennsylvania Press. That's it for today's episode. Thanks to all our guests. And remember, you and your friends can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and on our website, origins.osu.edu. And you can leave a review if you're so inclined. As always, thanks for listening.
1: This episode of History Talk Podcast was brought to you by Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective, an online publication of the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Our main editors are Stephen Kahn and Nicholas Breifogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Patrick Badiondi and Mark Sikolsky. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more at our website, origins.osu.edu, on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Thanks for listening.